Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. As we continue to gather for worship during Lent, we'll be looking at another of the penitential psalms today. Uh, that is a psalms that uh, focus on confession and repentance of sin, and, and we're looking at Psalm 130 today. And that is a, a chapter of Scripture that has meant a lot to both Jews and Christians uh, for many centuries, actually, and <clears throat> dating way back into Old Testament times. Besides it being one of the penitential psalms, it's also one of 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent, uh, Psalm 120 to 134, or that. And as I understand it, those were psalms that were uh, often sung by Old Testament Jews as they traveled up to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover or other yearly feasts. Uh, and so very likely, Jesus, as he traveled at age 12 with his family, Joseph and Mary and, and others, uh, up to the feast of the Passover, would have sung some of these psalms as they traveled by foot for days, and that last day would be kind of a steady ascent, um, steady climb up to Mount Zion uh, or the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, Psalm 130 has, has been put to music many times uh, in the years since then. Uh, back in the 500s AD, it was sung in the Gregorian chant. <clears throat> Martin Luther described it as one of the best psalms, and, and back in uh, 1524 then, in the early years of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote words and music to a hymn that was based on this psalm, and that hymn was sung at his funeral 22 years later. Other Protestant reformers, such as John Calvin, also described Psalm 130 as their favorite psalm. Um, hearing it sung was instrumental in the conversion of John Wesley, and has brought hope in, in many times of great devastation. For instance, back in May of 1707, in the town of Mühlhausen, Germany, was ravaged by a fire. It destroyed about a fourth of the town. Many families lost their homes and their fortunes in it. And there was a pastor in the town that approached a young 22-year-old musician named Johann Sebastian Bach. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a asked to compose a cantata based on that psalm. And it very likely was his first cantata he wrote. And uh, he noted at the top of it that it was composed for an event of mourning. This psalm has often been quoted as, as part of the order of service or, or beginning prayer for funerals. And it starts out with this cry of desperation. And in times of helplessness, when mankind does not know where else to turn, it's a heart cry to Almighty God. Look with me at Psalm 130 today. I invite you to follow along. And would you stand in reverence to God's word as we read? <clears throat> Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the Psalms and for the heart cry of the psalmist here that many of us at times have echoed and for this psalm that has been a, been a blessing to generations. Lord, pray that today as we meditate on it, uh, you'd speak to each of our hearts and if there would be those that are going through times of struggle, that, that they would see the hope that, that it is declared here. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in these uh, very troubled times politically in our land uh, and times when the media seems to run wild with one scare after another, we who are Christians ought to know where to turn. We go to God in prayer. The latest scare causing hysteria seems to be this coronavirus. And while I do not intend to say that we should not be concerned at all about it, I think it might help us to recognize that there have been many other such scares in the past. Uh, one person compiled a list uh, of the uh, almost yearly scares that might kill us all since the year 2000. And that list included Y2K, anthrax, West Nile virus, SARS, bird flu, E. coli, financial collapse, swine flu, North Korea, Ebola virus, ISIS, Zika virus, and now coronavirus. And then, of course, there's the one that stays on the forefront of scares and, and can be blamed for every extreme weather event in the world, including the tornado that hit Nashville just this last week, global warming or climate change. Psalm 130 begins with a desperate cry to the Lord. And in times of desperation, we humans cry out for help. And who do we cry to? Well, certainly, times we cry out to people that are close to us that we might seek help from. And our state and local governments, as well as various charities, uh, have been able to provide some forms of relief at times as well. Do we remember to go to God in our times of desperation? I like what Spurgeon said here, and I quote, It is most comforting to know that whatever we did or did not do or could not do, yet we did pray, even in the worst of times. If we believe in an all-powerful God, then certainly it should make sense for us all to go to him for help. And the psalmist is in a state of helpless desperation here. He has nowhere else that he can turn in his situation, and so he calls out to God from the depths of despair. And that word in our text here, depths, is a word used to describe deep waters. The picture the psalmist describes here is that of the desperation of drowning in deep water. And I don't know if uh, you, any of you have ever had a scare uh, of water going over your head and gulping some of it in, <clears throat> but my limited experience water skiing as a teenager includes some of that. Um, being a farm kid from North Dakota who dropped out of beginning swimming lessons uh, a few years before that, and, and having hardly been to the lake 
or had a life jacket on ever, uh, I had the opportunity to try water skiing. And my first attempt at water skiing, I, I, I leaned back a little early, then let go of the rope, but it caught between my legs and it dragged me down under. And I got a few good gulps of lake water before I got free and the life jacket brought me back up. Not a good feeling to be down in the depths. Maybe you feel like you're there even now. Some overwhelming circumstances in your life and, and you're crying out on the inside if not on the outside. We see here the psalmist crying out, out loud, that is, for help. He has a desire to be heard here. He says in verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. You see, the psalmist spoke audibly in prayer here, and you all know you don't have to do it that way in order to be heard by God. In the Catechism, it tells us that prayer is, is simply talking to God silently or out loud, but from our heart. And so God can hear the cry of the heart, whether it comes out of our lips or not. But I believe that there is value in verbally saying our prayers. Not for God's sake, he's not hard of hearing, but for our sake. In Psalm 62, for instance, David encourages us to pour out our heart before God. There's something about doing so that helps us cast our burden on him, to trust him to do something about it. And so the author here of Psalm 130 cries out to God in desperation. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And then what follows that cry is the realization of a couple of things. And one of them is this, that he doesn't deserve to be heard or helped. And furthermore, he has this great realization then concerning the Lord, and that is that his records would condemn us all. <clears throat> now, I've had the opportunity to teach a semester of classes at our Free Lutheran Bible College a few times, and part of the responsibility of that then involves keeping some good records of all the assignments that these students have completed and handed in to me and the grades that they got on those assignments. And, and those grades are then entered into this software online that allows the student and myself and uh, administration of the school all to see what the grades are on an ongoing basis. And, and so there is no disputing the record. It's there in front of all concerned. And if a student hasn't handed in an assignment yet when it was due, then it says zero. And uh, it might also say F thus far in the class. That's the record. Now imagine if God kept a record book. And actually, Scripture tells us that he does, not only of the things that other people see, but even of the thoughts and the things that no one else sees. It says in Scripture, all, all things are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. Rather scary thought, isn't it? I learned an illustration a number of years ago that helps the reality of that sink in for me. And that is this. And I want you to apply it to yourself today as well. Now, let, let's say that you're a fairly nice person compared to many around you anyway. Then so you only sin, uh, say, three times a day. Even in your thoughts or the words you say or the things you do. Three times a day. I'd th say that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, let's add it up a little bit here. How about within a week then? What does that look like? 
21 then in a week, right? Doesn't sound too bad yet. How about in a year? Three times 365, now it's starting to add up, isn't it? We're at over a thousand sins in a year. And how old are you? Some of you have racked up quite a few, haven't you? In your life thus far. If you're 70, that's 70,000 sins, and, and that's just the good days, right? The list is extensive. And now if you were to stand before a judge with that many traffic violations or worse crimes committed, how would you fare? Me too. The record's adding up and we would all stand condemned. Verse 3 here, the psalmist says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one could stand. God's records would condemn us all. And so that makes the next word in this psalm so important. And that word is but. But he offers forgiveness here. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, verse 4. There is forgiveness with you. You see, that's why the Jews would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover each year. There they would be reminded that they got from God far better than they deserved. There they would be reminded of that sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament that died so that its blood could be painted on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over that house. The Jews then were all sinners and so were the Egyptians, but God spared judgment on all who trusted in the sacrificial lamb. Well, years later when Jesus celebrated that Passover meal, remembering that. He celebrated that with his disciples in the upper room. And he said then that his body and blood would be given for them for forgiveness of their sins. And that's what he accomplished on the cross. And he became that sacrificial lamb for us so that no blood sacrifice would ever need to be offered again. And though the Psalms were written hundreds of years before the time of Christ... Yet the author of Psalm 130 also understood this about the God, that he is a forgiving God for all who will repent of their sins. And that's what's so necessary then for any of us to receive forgiveness. <clears throat> Barnes, in his notes on this passage of Scripture, says this, When we come before God, the ground of our hope is not that we can justify ourselves, not that we can prove we have not sinned, not that we can explain away our sins, not that we can offer an apology for them. It is only in a frank and full confession and in a hope that God will forgive them. He does not come in this manner, or he who does not come in this manner can have no hope of acceptance with God. Verse 4, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What happens in the heart of a sinner when he becomes reconciled to God through Christ is that his heart then is filled with gratitude. And there is then a holy fear of God, not a slavish fear, a fear of punishment, but a healthy respect or a reverence for that one who has sacrificed so much to save him. And as we look back at the psalm here then, it begins with this desperate cry to God for help, and then that realization that if God keeps track of sins, we're all in big trouble. And then the realization that for the repentant sinner, there is forgiveness. And what a relief that is to know. 
However, all is not yet completely fixed in this earthly life. We still live surrounded by sinners. We still have an old sinful nature ourselves which causes us trouble every day. We still live with sickness and suffering and pain in this fallen world. And we still have feelings of desperation at times. And we still cry out to God then in our helplessness. And we wait for him to help us. But I see here from the psalmist a a confident wait for the Lord. He says, I wait because his word gives me hope. Now how is it that I can know God's forgiveness? How is it I can know that I can even cry out to him in prayer? How do I know that he listens to my cry? It's his word that tells us that. I love what Hudson Taylor said as he sums this up so well. There are three great truths. First, that there is a God. Second, that he has spoken to us through the Bible. And third, that he means what he says. And that brings us to the surety of what I hope in. And the psalmist illustrates this waiting for the Lord's help here to be, to be like a, a night watchman who, who stays awake through the night and keeps looking to the east for the sun to come up and his shift to be done. And there is this intense longing for the morning to come. The night's cold and dark and it's hard to wait, but along with that longing for the morning, there's also something else. And that is this. There is an absolute confidence that morning is coming. It always does. There's not been a night that has never ended. Daylight always comes around. And the psalmist says here, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. And we too, though we may have to wait for God's answer, can be sure that his help is coming. What are we waiting for but, not, but, but sure is coming? Well, we already have forgiveness of sin here and now in Christ, but we still continue to struggle with temptation and give in to sin, and so we must then seek to live our lives in daily repentance and faith. And we wait on the Lord for help day by day to keep the faith and to keep trusting him. And we wait on the Lord for strength to persevere in our trials. And we wait on the Lord for wisdom to navigate the many decisions that we need to make along the way. But what we are really waiting for, more than all of that, ultimately is the return of Christ. You know, Old Testament Israel waited for his first coming. They had heard prophecy after prophecy over and over again, um, but had to wait for God's right time. And, And Galatians tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, He did come, and that will be true for Christ's return as well. And that is when our redemption at last will be complete. I want to wrap up our study of this psalm with what I see in the last couple of verses there, 7 and 8. And that is, I guess I'd call it, the limits of the Lord's redemption. You know, Satan would like to throw doubt in our minds about all of this and cause us to wonder, well, is it really true? And even if this works for others, will it really work for me? Does God really care about what I'm going through? I've been waiting a long time for his answer. Where is it? 
Are there limits to who he will be able to redeem or who he cares to redeem? And what do we see are the limits in, of his redemption according to these verses? O Israel, hope in the Lord. With the Lord there is loving kindness, it says there. Loving kindness, another word for that is unfailing love or steadfast love. You know, if something is steadfast, that means it does not move or change. It's stuck there. And God's love for you is stuck there. Nothing can change it. It is unfailing. Even if you fail over and over again, his love will not fail you. And it goes on to say in verse 7, and with him is abundant redemption. Abundant, plentiful, full. Barnes says this, with him is plenteous redemption. It is ample, it is full, it abounds, it is not limited, it is not exhausted, it cannot be exhausted. Well, some might think, okay, so he can forgive me for most things I've done. But you know, there are some things that nobody else knows about. Some things I'd be ashamed if they were exposed. I don't even dare to talk to anybody about them. Can he forgive me for them too? I think, I think of an older gentleman I got to know as a result of visiting his wife when she was dying of cancer and, and then a matter of months later having her funeral. And after that, visiting with him again and sharing with him God's offer of forgiveness of sin in Christ and there was a situation on his mind that had been haunting him for years. And I don't know who he had talked to about it, probably not very many. But he talked to me about it that day. You see, he had had an affair with a relative's wife, causing her to divorce her husband and marry him. And so he had stayed away from church and the things of the Lord for years, ridden with guilt about that relationship. And now she had passed away. Now he asked me that question. Could God forgive that? Took him to uh, 1 John chapter 1 and, and had him read a verse there where it just said this, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And I asked him, so what does that leave out? And he got this big smile on his face. He said, Nothing. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's what it says here as well. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Redemption from all sin. Not, not just one or two or even most, but all. With the Lord, not only am I never without hope, but he fully redeems me. Martin Luther wrote that hymn about Psalm 130, and the last verse of it, translated from the German into English, goes like this. Though great our sins and sore our wounds, and deep and dark our fall, his, help, his helping mercy hath no bounds. His love surpasseth all. Our trusty, loving shepherd he, who shall at last set Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks today for this psalm that has ministered to the hearts of many for generations. And we thank you that it presents to us 
that you are a forgiving God. And Lord, you know everything about us. There's not a thing that has slipped by you. Even those things nobody else knows about, you know. And so, Lord, that means you know all of our sin. You know what it's added up to, the big numbers that it is. It's beyond any of us to even fathom. But thank you that you have told us in your word that there is forgiveness for all sin. And Lord, if there be somebody here today struggling under guilt about something, we pray that even today they would know that your word applies to them as well and to that situation. And we thank you for that full forgiveness. And we ask that you'd help us, Lord, to live in daily repentance and faith. And we pray also that you would help us as we go through the many trials of this life and at times feel like we're in the depths and we're calling out for help and waiting and not seeing it. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to continue to trust you, to look to you and pray to you and to wait on you. And we thank you that ultimately there is full redemption when Christ returns and ushers in eternity. And for us to know Jesus, that means a place of eternal rewards and freedom from sickness and suffering and pain. And we thank you for those promises of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.